0: So very glad to be here with you this afternoon to worship our God who is with us. Amen? Uh, as I walked into uh, this building for the first time, I immediately smiled. Two reasons. One, uh, Jacob Holly was wearing a suit jacket. <laughs> praise God. He's looking handsome today. I've never seen him in a jacket before, but praise God. I love you, Jacob. Brother, thank you so much for leading us and serving us the ways you do. Second, uh, just to see you, here uh, today. Praise God. Uh, We've never done the whole church planting thing before setting up, tear down. Thank you so much for serving so faithfully. A special shout out to Bruce. I know you went through a lot of trouble to pick up all the sound system, pick up the mics and set everything up. In addition to so many of you uh, who served so faithfully. Thank you. A round of applause and encouragement to all of you. Thank you so much for showing up. Thank you for loving Jesus. Amen? I don't like to do corny, awkward things, but turn to the person next to you, look them deeply in the eyes, don't make it creepy, and say, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for showing up. But will God indeed dwell on earth? is the central question of the passage we have before us today in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The question is a worthy one because we know, and Solomon and Israel knew as it states in the rest of verse 27 Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God No building on earth made by human hands, could be a suitable habitation for God. That's common sense. So why would the God and the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the ruler of the galaxies, dwell with man on earth? Why? Yet the truth, that our God, Yahweh, is one who dwells among His people, and even further than that, that Yahweh, our God, is Emmanuel God, God with us, the mind-blowing fact that God's very presence dwelled among us in human form. As John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The doctrine of incarnation is the central doctrine of our faith. It is a doctrine that is unique to Christianity alone. The truth that God, the Lord and sustainer of the universe, dwells with His people sounds offensive and preposterous to other religions. But to us, the promise And the prophecy that the dwelling place of God is with man, that He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and that God Himself will be with them as their God, as according to Revelation 21.3, is the necessity and the certainty of our salvation. Jesus becoming man guarantees our salvation. Amen? It is one of the foundations of our faith. And our passage answers why. God would indeed dwell with His people. As Christmas approaches, what better way to celebrate it than to remember the true reason for the season, to reflect on the incarnation of the promised Messiah King. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of the kings. Christ is the substance that Solomon and his temple would only shadow. Jesus is the name in which the peace of God would reign that Solomon's name would only point to. As one theologian says, until we grasp that Christ is God in flesh, the Old Testament will remain a collection of stories about how men and women struggled with a cult of faith. The incarnation of Jesus helps us to see that the Old Testament sets the stage for God to once again live with man as he did in the Garden of Eden. On every Old Testament page, God promises a human deliverer who is also stronger than Satan, both a suffering servant and also an anointed king. In our passage this afternoon, we learn of how Solomon's temple sets the stage for God to indeed dwell with man and how it foreshadows just how much God is all in with his people. Amen? We're continuing our study through 1 and 2nd Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as mentioned, the Kings is about the short-lived, peaceful reign of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon's reign. But it's also mostly about the eventual division and downfall and decimation and exile of Israel. But the message of kings is clear and its lessons still applies to his people today. Kings fail and kingdoms fall. But the word of the Lord will stand. Amen? Amen. Through the ups and downs of life, despite the worthy or unworthy actions of humans, the Lord accomplishes His purposes. The Lord keeps His promises. The Lord fulfills His word. In my sermon previous to this one on 1 Kings 6 and 7, I had mentioned that we are approaching the high point of the Old Testament, one of the most important moments in the history of humanity. Well, our chapter today is that magnificent historical moment. One commentator says, 1 Kings is one of the most theologically significant texts in the Kings." This chapter is much more than the pomp and ceremony and the ritual associated with a major building dedication. What we see in First Kings eight is not only glorious in grandeur of its scale, but gloriously rich with significance from start to finish. I shared with you a few weeks ago that I attended the Garden Church Baltimore's building dedication service. It was truly a blessed time, reflecting on how the Lord provided, how the Lord grew and led that congregation through the years. Friends and family and ministry partners of the church, of the members of the Garden Church, gathered together from all around the city and around the country to celebrate the Lord's goodness for the new building. The gathering blessed God. Uh, It blessed the Garden Church and it blessed those who met that night to celebrate and worship God. But the gathering in 1 Kings is like that, but the scale and the significance was much more. It was truly a glorious and unprecedented occasion in Israel's history to experience an extraordinary blessing through Solomon's reign. Well, the question for us and for us to understand is why was it so special? In what ways was God's people blessed? Through King Solomon. That is the question of the passage. So from first Kings 8, I want to share with you three ways God blesses his people through the King. Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. In question form, how does God bless his people through the king? How does God bless his people through the king? Point number one, through inhabitation. Verses 1 through 21. Inhabitation. Point number two, through intercession. Verses 22 through 53. And point number three, through incarnation. Verse 54 through 66. Inhabitation, intercession, incarnation. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this word that you would be reminded again that our God is God who is with us. No matter what difficulties we face in life, God will not leave us or forsake us. According to our passage today, I pray as a result of this message, you will draw near to him as you learn just how near, just how close our God, the God of the universe, dwells with us. Guests and visitors, do we have any today? Uh, Thank you so much for coming. Uh, As our church has been meeting in various different locations in different times, praise God. How in the world did you find us? Uh, I'm just looking out and seeing some new faces. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been praying for you praying that even through our transition, the Lord would lead you here today, that you may hear His word, that you may believe and call on Him as Lord. The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll be saved from your sins, saved from hopelessness, saved from meaninglessness in this life, saved from just judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against Him. Perhaps today will be the day that you will turn from trusting in yourself, to trusting Jesus who is God with us. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word found on page 287 through 290 in your ESV Bibles. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you, please keep your Bibles open and reference it often as I preach so that you know that this is God's word for you to give you hope and to give you life and to encourage you and build you up in faith. Our passage today again is an unusually long passage, so instead of reading it all the way through, let's just jump right into the sermon. Point number one: How does God bless His people through the king through inhabitation? Again, the passage we have before us is a long passage, sixty-six verses, and to some of you, the passage may seem very tedious. But its structure, if you read it over and over again a couple times, the structure helps us to focus on its emphasis, which what we've been talking about in our Simeon Trust workshops and our sermon reviews on Wednesdays. Okay, the structure helps us to focus on the emphasis which is helpful in understanding the passage. Although in our initial reading, this chapter is mainly about the details of the temple dedication after its completion, the chapter, again, is full of theological significance and important implications for Christians today, for you and me. Upon studying this passage, we can observe that the chapter is written in a chiastic form, which is a rhetorical device in which the sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. So, A- B, and then B, A. You see, but in a chiasm, before the ideas are repeated in reverse order, the third idea is inserted, which is intended to be emphasized. So whatever is in that middle section is often the point of the passage, or at least it bears the weight of the passage. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see roughly a chiastic structure that looks something like this. Look at your Bibles. In verses 1 through 11, an assembly gathered... For celebration and sacrifice. And that is repeated in reverse order in verses 62 through 66. Sacrifice, assembly, celebration. You'll note the second section is Solomon's blessing and benediction. In verses 12 through 21. And in reverse, verses 54 through 61. And then in the middle section, you have this amazing seven prayers of petition offered up by Solomon. And the prayer has a driving theme, you'll notice as you read it. It regards Solomon petitioning God for forgiveness when God's people sin. The phrase is, if your people sin against you, then hear from heaven and forgive your people. That similar phrase is repeated seven times in that middle section. Now, next week's sermon is going to focus more specifically on just this middle section, which is emphasized in this chapter. And today's message will be more of an overview, a big picture view of the whole chapter. And so I bring out the structure of the passage for us to understand. There is more going on in this momentous occasion of Solomon's temple dedication. And how it has deep and profound meaning of how God will dwell with His people. How deep God will be in with His own. We're going to get to some more details about that in point number two. But first consider... How God blesses His people through this occasion. God inhabits the praises of His people. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of Solomon's temple was for God to show His people that His presence would always be with them. Jesus would later say in Matthew eighteen 20, doesn't He? That wherever two or three are gathered in My name, I will be among you. For those of you who get excited about ecclesiology, doctrine of the church... He says this in the context of the gathered church who are exercising the keys of the kingdom. Church discipline, Matthew 18. What this means is that God has always been about dwelling among His people, set apart for His purposes when they are gathered in worship. It means that Yahweh, our God, the God that we worship this afternoon, is not a distant, disinterested God ready to rain down fire and brimstone on wicked sinners for every little sin they commit. God is not this always angry, always judging God. This is basically how every other religion in the world understands their own gods to be. It's because they don't know the symbolic message of 1 Kings 8 and what the Bible teaches about who God is and His redemption plan through the Messiah King Jesus Christ. The God of the Bible, the one true living God, is one of steadfast love and grace and mercy and one who dwells among His own. Now what's going on in 1 Kings 8 is a divine homecoming of sorts. Verses 1-11 through 11 tells us of this celebratory occasion. So look at verses 1-4. through 4. It says this, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Israel at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of the meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. You see, the purpose of this great assembly, this great gathering of God's people, as it states in the last phrase of verse 1, was to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, out of the city of David, which is in Zion. Excitement and expectation had been building up for this very climactic moment of Israel's history. For several years, the temple and the palace, while it was being built, whispers had spread all over town, the Ark is coming. The presence of God is coming to dwell among us. God is coming to live with us for good. Can you imagine the anticipation, the excitement that was going around in the city? Background about the long journey and history of the Ark of the Covenant with God's people may increase your understanding of what this occasion meant for the Israelites at the time. And you can read, if you want some more context, 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 6, 2 Samuel 6, and 1 Chronicles 13 through 16, if you want to really understand how excited the people of God were for this occasion. But what's important for us to know today is that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant among God's people in Solomon's temple meant that the blessing of God would rest on God's people. And it meant that God was fulfilling His covenant promises to redeem a people made to Noah, to bless a people made to Abraham, to deliver and keep a people made to Moses, and to reign and dwell among a people set apart as His own made to David. You see, a time of peace and rest from threats and wars had come. And Solomon was the chosen king. He was an offspring of David who had built a house for God, wherein his, God's presence can dwell according to God's word. Hence, as one commentator says, Without question and beyond all doubt, the event of 1 Kings 8 was the most extraordinary worship service that anyone has ever witnessed and been a part of. Indeed, it may have been the most awesome, spine-tingling, goose-bump-inducing worship that any human beings on earth has ever offered to the living God. That's why you see in verse 5, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark. Second Chronicles 5 details a more dramatic, parallel account, and it tells us for an entire week The whole nation of Israel had gathered around the temple of God at the top of Mount Zion. And as the celebration came to its climax, King Solomon and all of his entourage, the elders, the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses, had come out in preparation to bring this ark. And a myriad of priests came out of the temple who were consecrated for service to God by washing in the great bronze basin and the sea of cleansing as we talked about in uh, chapters 6 and 7. Singers of the Levitical choir and various instrumentalists stood outside the temple with harps and lyres and cymbals, not to mention 120 trumpets on cue. All these musicians and singers burst into worship at the same time, offering beautiful hymns of praise in one voice. Their musical text, the words that they sang, was the famous refrain from King David from Psalm 136, as 2 Chronicles 5.13 details, For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Can you imagine the nation of Israel gathered together as one, lifting up one voice? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. At the center of this liturgical extravaganza was the only thing that could ever be worthy of such praise and joy and celebration. Again, the holy presence of the living God coming to dwell, inhabit. The temple of Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant was coming home to the house of God. The Ark, the temple, was not just one of the most beautiful buildings to be ever built. It was to be the center of God's people's worship. The earthly dwelling place for the true and living God. We see in verses 6 through 8, how the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place. Underneath the wings of the cherubim, it was a visual depiction of how God's holiness and glory And majesty was secured in the most sacred place. It says in verse 8, The poles were so long because nobody was holy enough to touch the Ark of the Covenant itself. They had to carry it with these long poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. See what this verse means to detail is that although the Ark of the Covenant was with God's people in Solomon's house, in Solomon's temple, the average person like you and me, we did not have access to it. The average Israelite could only peek in and and see a glimpse of the holiness of God, just the poles sticking out through the doors. And the phrase, and they are there to this day, means to tell us of its historical accuracy. In the time that the author was writing the kings, the poles were still there. Visible to the eyes. You could, you could look out and, and see the poles sticking out. These descriptions were not a, a fictional figment of someone's imagination, you see. Verse 9, if you look at verse 9, jumps out to us in our reading of it, doesn't it? There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. This emphatic comment is intended to clear up any possible misconception that Aaron's rod, according to number 1610, and a jar of manna, according to Exodus 1633, were there as well. No. These items had once been placed alongside the Ark, but never in it. By Solomon's time, they were not even available for placement in the most holy place in the temple. Only Moses' two tablets of stone were present, which highlights Israel's connection to the Mosaic Covenant. God's presence, God's word, and God's covenant with Israel are directly related. God's presence, God's word, and God's covenant with Israel are directly related. Let me say that again in another way. God remembers His covenant by keeping His word. Where His word is, is where His presence dwells. God remembers His covenant by keeping His word, and where His word is, That is where His presence dwells. No wonder what we read in the next verses in verse 10 and 11 is the desire and the prayer of all Christians in worship. Even though you are here, God, come. Even though you're everywhere, God, be near. Even though you have revealed yourself to us, give us eyes to see you. Even though you have given us your word, give us your presence. Give us more of you. Isn't this the desire and prayer of every Christian according to Psalm 73, 28? The nearness of God is my good. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says this, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is an amazing scene, brothers and sisters. When I was in college... After I had just gotten saved I was so on fire for the Lord So hungry for God Maybe a little too charismatic back then I was somewhat of a revival chaser Anyway, in my spiritual zeal And in my spiritual immaturity During those days I would go to basically every Christian concert Every Christian conference possible To seek a blessing I mean, Shane and Shane knew me by name Because I would follow them around Like I was their (laughs) roadie or something David Crowder, Chris Tomlin, Hillsong, Passion, One Day, you name it, I was right there in the front. (laughs) Professional, like doing this thing. Brothers and sisters, I was so hungry for a blessing. I wanted to experience the presence of God on my face as this verse and accounts of revival history would describe. Now, if you ask me, I will tell you offline about this one eye opening, life changing experience I had chasing one particular revival which changed my perspective on revivals for good and set me on a trajectory toward a more biblically faithful theology. But the point of my story and this passage is there were times in biblical and Christian history God moved in supernatural, mysterious, amazing ways to reconfirm an extraordinary promise. The presence of the thick cloud which filled the house of the Lord on that day was a confirmation of God's message and work among His people. Just as the cloud of God's glory led Israel in the wilderness and the cloud filled the tabernacle when Moses dedicated the earlier worship center in Exodus 40, the cloud of glory filling Solomon's temple meant the reality of the Lord's presence which would protect and guide His people. It was a divine approval of Solomon's temple. Just as God was with Moses, what God was showing to the people of Israel is that now He is with Solomon and a new generation of Israelites. As one commentator says, such continuity reaffirms the Lord's never-changing character. His desire to have fellowship with human beings and ongoing commitment to the chosen people. Yes, God was in the thick darkness. There was no way for sinful human beings to see God entirely face-to-face. Yet, think about it, brothers and sisters. God's transcendence, His holiness, had veiled Him in thick darkness. You are not dismissed just yet. (laughs) But the reason why God showed up in this amazing way was because God wanted His people to know His imminence, That He is knowable. That He is perceivable. That He is graspable. God came to inhabit the praises of His people as according to Psalm 23 because that's the kind of loving and gracious God that He is. That is the God whom we serve. Amen? Brothers and sisters, if we know that in Christ the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit where His very presence dwells, if we know that in Christ there is no barrier into the holies of holies, that in Christ we have the full and final word, if you truly believe in this, how much more ought we be excited and expectant when we gather to worship our King of kings and Lord of lords, the true God of all. Amen? Every Sunday we have the opportunity to gather together to truly worship God, the living God, without any hindrance, without any barrier. Amen? Yet we forget that reality, don't we? Many of us on many Sundays act like, perhaps not on the outside, but inwardly as if God is not present with us. Many of us worship God with our hearts and minds preoccupied by the things of this world. Listen, brothers and sisters, do you believe that God still today can inhabit the praises of His people? Yes or no? I hope you do. Do you believe that God still today can make a holy visitation during a church service? Yes or no? If not, why in the world are you here? The desire and prayer of our hearts should be, Lord, we believe that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are here and you are near. And our prayer and our desire, even as we listen to this word, is to pray to God in our spirits, in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, speak a necessary word. Speak an encouraging word to awaken and convict your people that will lead to repentance and deeper, truer faith. Lord, give that person a word that will lift them up from anxiety and depression. Grant by your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word, a renewed spirit, a renewed and right spirit of joy and perseverance in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Grant by your power a life-altering revelation of yourself to unbelievers in this room, in this place, in this very moment. That you may be honored. That you may be glorified. That you may be rightly praised. Amen? Amen? Isn't that our desire? Isn't that our prayer? You don't want to come to church every Sunday and leave the same, do you? You want to leave this place encouraged and blessed and reminded that you are walking the right path. Fighting the good fight because God is real. And God dwells with us among His people. Which is the reason why Solomon, upon recognizing that God's Spirit had filled the house of the Lord, he turns now to bless the people. Now picture what's going on here. Solomon, God's chosen king, filled with God's Spirit, recollects God's promises. That's verses 15 through 21. And this act of recollecting, we are told, is Solomon's way of blessing God's people. This is amazing, isn't it? It's not so much different from what I do every Sunday prayerfully aiming to bless you by reminding you of God's promises through His Word. When we recollect God's words back to God, that's blessing God. That's blessing others. That's why we at New Covenant Baptist aim to pray God's Word, sing God's Word, read God's Word, preach and hear God's Word, and see God's Word through baptism and Lord's Supper. Amen? His Word is the only thing that matters. Amen? Because His Word is where His presence dwells. But there's more theological significance here. The chosen king Solomon stands in the place between God and man, recognizing who is indeed the true king. You see the word for dwell in verse 13. Mark that word, verse 13. Dwell is a different word than the word dwell used in verse 12. The word dwell in verse 13 means to reign. So Solomon is saying to God, not only did you say that you will dwell and live among your people, The temple is the place where you can reign forever. So I think what's going on here leads us to the next point of showing us how far God is in with his people. How much he desires. How much God desires to dwell with his people. So point number two, how does God bless his people through the king? Point number two, through intercession. From verses 22 through 53. So Solomon, recognizing God's glorious presence, filling his house... Solomon, looking upon the Israelite congregation gathered and standing before him, recognized that there is no way for sinful human beings to be with a holy God, for a righteous God to be with rebellious Israel. Hence, intercession has to be made. Solomon has to serve as the chosen mediator between God and men. So look at verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hand toward heaven and said, listen, as I shared with you earlier, that I'm going to preach the specifics of these verses next Sunday, focusing on Solomon's prayer. But today, I want us to focus on Solomon's blessing, what he does by blessing God's people through this intercession. How does God bless His people through the king? First, through the king. We just talked about how God gave us a temple for His presence to inhabit His people. And second, what we're seeing through the king, God gave us an altar for intercession to be made. On behalf of the people's sin This is exactly what Solomon does in the next verses Offering up to God seven prayers of petition And it's not a stretch to say Solomon, God's chosen king Is making the complete, perfect mediation Between God and man before the altar You see, God had always desired to dwell with His own From the Garden of Eden Through the flood Through the enslavement in Egypt Through the exodus Through the wilderness wanderings Through their damnable disobedience Yet the people would not turn to Him for long. Sin had been what was keeping them from God to rest with them forever. It was not a lack of divine initiative, you see, on God's part. And Solomon recognized that immediately. That the barrier of why there was a thick, dark cloud was necessary. Our sin. Our sin was in the way. And so naturally, Solomon questions in verse 27, the question that I posed to you in the beginning. But will God indeed dwell on earth. You'll notice throughout this verse, Solomon's blessing and intercession is made by the repeated use of the word name and house. So if you look at this passage, 14 times the word name is used. 22 times the word house is used in this chapter alone. So as Solomon pleads the Lord to forgive the sins of Israel, the question whether God will indeed dwell on earth, that God would remember His promise In verse 28 and 29. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servants praise before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Solomon is saying, Lord, will you remember this promise? Will you truly dwell among your people even though sin plagues us? Sin blocks us. Sin is a a barrier to your presence for long. To cut to the point, brothers and sisters, the name in which God's house will be built and where God's presence will reign forever was not the name of Solomon. The house was not Solomon's house, as we will see in the next chapters that Solomon's temple will be soon destroyed. So how does then God answer Solomon's prayer? That leads us to our third point. How does God bless His people through the king? Third and final point, through incarnation the reincarnation the name in which god's forever reign will be built is the name of jesus christ the house which he himself will build is his church remember jesus says i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail well acts 4:11 through 12 says this jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, brothers and sisters, not only is Jesus the greater temple wherein God's presence can forever reign, according to Matthew 12, 6, Jesus, again, is the greater Solomon, the new and better king, according to Matthew 12, 42. And not only that, Jesus is a better and perfect mediator between God and men, according to 1 Timothy 2, 5. Hebrews 8, 5-7 says this, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What does this mean? Jesus is the better mediator who operated under a better covenant and who fulfilled a better promise. Amen. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance according to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. You'll see after the seven petitions of intercession in verse 54, Solomon is found in a more humble posture. Kneeling before the altar It is in remembering the name Upon which God's forever reign will be established Solomon blesses the assembly again And you could find that in verses 55 through 61 Solomon says in verse 56 and 57 If you look at those verses Blessed be the name of the Lord Who has given rest to his people Israel According to all that he promised Not one word has failed Of all his good promise Which he spoke by Moses his servant the Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. May He not leave us or forsake us. Brothers and sisters, these are prophetic words in which only the promised Messiah, King, Jesus, would fulfill. For as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amens to God for His glory. Brothers and sisters, only in Christ are all the promises of God answered with a resounding yes and a yes and a yes. Hallelujah. Only in Christ not one word will fail. All of His good promises will be fulfilled in Christ. Only in Christ... The Lord God will be with us as Emmanuel God. Only in Christ He will not leave us or forsake us. Only in Christ God inclines our hearts to Him to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, His rules, which He commanded to our fathers. The lingering question then, however, may be how? We know that Jesus is the mediator, the perfect mediator. But how does Jesus accomplish this? You'll see in verse 62 through 63, an enormous amount of animal sacrifices that are offered up. Verse 5, remember the whole chiastic structure, and then 62 and 63, an enormous amount of animal sacrifices, not only for mediation, but for atonement to be made, for God's presence to come and dwell with His people, since a holy and righteous God cannot be one with sin, yet because of utter wretchedness and depravity of human sin, the offering and killing of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were necessary. But the reality is that all these enormous amounts of animal sacrifices were not enough. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered Since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away any sins. And in verse 12 of Hebrews 10 it says this but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. Brothers and sisters, God can dwell with us because Jesus had made the perfect, ultimate, final sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Charles Spurgeon says this, Today, there remains one temple, and that is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the temple, the altar, and the sacrifice. And if you would look the right way in prayer, and if you desire your prayers to speed, you must look to Him by the eyes of faith. See, there He sits at the right hand of God, having finished the one sacrifice and made atonement for sin forever. There He sits, priest, altar, offering, and temple. And every true supplicant must enter into the holiest by His blood alone. By a new and living way He has consecrated for us, Through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. Isn't that amazing? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the altar. Jesus is the sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus is the new and greater temple, God will forever inhabit the praises of His people. We don't have to be afraid that as we worship God, that we are not without God. He is among us. Because Jesus is the better and ultimate altar, the greater mediator, God has heard He is for us. He lived the perfect life we could not live. He fulfilled the law that we disobeyed over and over again. And because Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice, because He offered Himself as our substitute on the cross, and because God accepted His sacrifice by raising Him back to life again, the resurrection, when Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death once and for all, no more sacrifice is required. And for anyone who would look to Him and trust in Him can have new and eternal life forever this is the good news of Jesus Christ this is the best news you will ever hear, so guests and visitors if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are I want to ask you these questions what is your house, what is your security what is your altar what is the object of your worship, what is your sacrifice what are you giving up to obtain that which will soon perish If Jesus isn't your temple, altar and sacrifice, simply, you have no hope. You have no certainty in this life. I want to encourage you, please, repent from your sins. That means to turn from trusting in yourself and the things of this world. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and that He reigns victorious and sovereign today. Trust Him with your whole life and whatever circumstances that, that may come your way, trust Him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. Amen? If you want to talk more about how you can follow Jesus, the pastors of this church will be happy to talk to you at the doors or the members of this church who are smiling next to you would love to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus, how awesome and amazing it is to know and be loved by Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters of NCVC, what wonderful lessons of grace and mercy we are learning that God dwells with us, not in buildings made with hands, but in a spiritual house. Christ is building His church. That's you and me. Born by His love. Born again by His blood. Sustained by His joy and grace and strength. Amen? I pray, like the Israelites in verse 66, that as we leave this place, brothers and sisters, that we will leave blessing the King. You are worthy. We love you. You are worthy. You are good. You are gracious. And that we go to our homes with joyful gladness of hearts for all the goodness that the Lord has shown and will continue to show us. Because we are His and He is God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this beautiful and amazing reminder that You are the temple, that You are the altar, that You are the sacrifice. Father, in Christ Jesus, we have no worry. In Christ Jesus, we have no lack. We have the very Spirit and the presence of God and the Word of God dwelling with us and among us. Father, you promised us in your word, in the Old Testament, in the the Kings, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Hallelujah. God be praised. We are not spiritual orphans in this world. We can have security and guarantee of salvation and hope and strength even when life's challenges and difficult circumstances, sorrows and sufferings come our way because Christ is for us and with us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that through the difficult transitions of our church that your church will remain strong and united Father, that as we welcome 2024, Father, that we would ever be more joyful and glad to share the truth and the amazing good news of Jesus Christ to all we need. Father, may New Covenant Baptist Church glorify you, honor you, bless you, because you are the God, that you are the Lord, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you. We thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.